Well, thanks very much for that warm introduction, Ben. Anytime the Cubs come up, that's a good thing. <laughs> and we are still the world champions. We will be till next October when we win a second time. <laughs> I've heard so much about Asbury over the years, so it's a great honor for me to be here. And I want to thank Ben and David Bauer for this kind invitation to be a part of this lectureship. And uh, last night, Ross Jenkins uh, took me to the Theta Phi, Theta Phi lectures and Bob Book was our, our leader. So I'm honored to be here and to see some uh, familiar faces of people I've known. My former colleague at, Nor at uh, Trinity, uh, John Oswald, glad to see you here. And Howard Snyder, I'm glad to see you here as well. And I'm, I'm sure there are others. I just don't have the eyes to see that far back. Uh, this is somewhere between a sermon and an address, uh, but Ben is right. I'm all about the church, and uh, so I often ask if I'm an academic, and I always say, no, I'm a Christian, because that's my identity, and uh, I happen to study the Bible as well, and I like doing that, and uh, so I'm happy to be with you, and today uh, this will be a talk about Onesimus and tomorrow about Philemon. So these two belong together. Uh, and the rhetorical strategy that Paul pulls out in the book of Philemon, I will focus on a little bit tomorrow. But today we want to look a little bit at Onesimus. I will begin with a story because I grew up Baptist, which doesn't mean it has to be true or even close to the facts, <laughs> because this is a sermon. One day I woke up and a friend had emailed me to ask if I had seen a certain blog post which was taking me to pieces because of the bio on my blog page. Well, this isn't the sort of thing you want to discover at 6 o'clock in the morning, but when someone says that to you, the first thing you do is look. And uh, the person whose name will go unmentioned had a very sharp pen and was very skilled at what he was doing, which was ripping my bio pages to pieces and accusing me of all sorts of things. And it was a brutal critique to wake up to at 6 o'clock in the morning. So I plotted. I plotted that I would get back at him. Now I'll suspend the completion of that story till the end, uh, because the story has a wonderful ending. But there is nothing better or nothing harder than reconciliation. Like C.S. Lewis, who once said about forgiveness, forgiveness is such a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. And reconciliation is very much the same way. We believe in it. We affirm it. We sing about it. But it is extraordinarily demanding of our deepest existential being to be involved in actually reconciling with someone or participating in the reconciliation of someone else. And that's what I'd like to look at today is that Paul met a challenge to his own theology 
in this character named Onesimus, whom uh, Tom Wright very cleverly translates in his Kingdom New Testament, Mr. Useful, because the Greek word Onesimus means useful. And Paul's theory, as it were, Paul's theology, Paul's vision, is where I want to begin. And I think it begins in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where the Apostle Paul says, For there is in Christ neither Jew nor Greek, got to find it here, neither slave nor free, this is the obvious problem here with Onesimus, uh, nor is there male and female, a quotation from Genesis, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When Paul wrote his letter to Colossians, and there is some dispute about uh, when Paul wrote this, I have solved it. So in preparation for my talk this morning, I read Craig Keener's book on Acts. <laughs> and Ben Witherington's commentary on the New Testament. It says, here there is no Gentile, Paul says in Colossians 3.11, nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, or Green Bay Packer fan, that's my translation of Scythian, Cheeseheads, Northerners, slave or free, but Christ is in all, and Christ is all and is in all. This is Paul's theology. Paul actually believes that in Christ, which for him is not simply some spiritual status, but something that is to be embodied in a local church, Paul actually believed that there are these distinctions no longer obtained in Christ. He didn't wipe these distinctions. Women didn't become uh, non-sexual beings, and males didn't become non-sexual beings. These distinctions, in some sense, remained, but they were no longer regarded as having any value for status in the society of the church. Well, this is just a great idea until you have to work this out with someone, until your daughter, your Reuben, and you're Jewish, and your daughter decides to marry Theodore, and he speaks Greek and doesn't know a thing about Hebrew, and you wonder, what does this mean in our family, and what will it mean for Yom Kippur, and what will it mean for Pesach? What's it going to mean for us in our community to believe that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free? So this is a vision. Paul, in a sense, kicks open the door to this vision and kind of wonders what's going to happen when they get inside. And he is exploring this without blueprint. No one had ever done what the Apostle Paul sought to accomplish in the Gentile world, and that is to bring together into one new family of God, rooted in the stock of Israel, Romans 11, but now expanding in ways that were creating tension. And I think Paul loved the tension. If he didn't love it, he was creating it everywhere he went. This is how his churches work. And anybody who's pastored in a church or worked in a church know that the problem is that there's other people in the church not like you, right? John Ames, in his beautiful novel, well, 
It's Marilyn Robinson's novel. Um, would go to church in the morning, and he said he preferred church with no one in it. And he would pray. And I think a lot of pastors would, are like that because of the experience of working with God's people who don't like one another and who don't get along. And Paul said, that's what church is. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said we have to give up our wishful dreams of what the church should be. And only when we give those dreams up do we realize what the church actually is. So this is Paul's vision. But we have now a man called Onesimus, and this is Paul's challenge. And Paul deals with this guy, Onesimus, and I want to talk a little bit about slavery, because you don't understand the gravity of this letter, or the reality of first century churches, or what it meant to be in a fellowship of difference in the first century, until you understand the significance of what it would mean to bring together slaves and free, as well as Jews and Gentiles and males and females, into a typical church and begin to create a new kind of fellowship of siblingship. It is said that approximately 30% of the Roman Empire was slaves, enslaved. One of the saddest stories of the Roman Empire for me is the fact, probably accurate, at least for large periods during the Roman Empire, is that approximately 250,000 slaves would have been sold on the slave block in the downtown forum of Rome every year. Publicly exposed, sometimes with a necklace and a sign around them describing their strengths and weaknesses so that the purchaser would know what he or she were getting. It is important for us as post-New New World slavery Americans to understand that slavery in the first century was not connected to race. It was largely a, a matter of status in the Roman Empire. People were captured, etc., and they became slaves. Uh, it was not connected till, to race until probably the 6th and 7th century and connected to Muslim uh, trading. Keith Bradley's definition of slavery to me is the best I've seen. He's a, a magisterial history of slavery in the Roman Empire. And he wrote, slavery, and this is the sort of thing you read in academic books by academic people. So it's going to be dense. And you and your PhD students will like it. Don't quote it in a sermon. Slavery, by definition, is a means of securing and maintaining an involuntary labor force by a group in society that monopolizes political and economic power. So it is about economy. It is about coercion. And it is about power over another person of domination and ownership. There are debates and discussions among historians about whether more slaves were born or captured. I tend to think there were more were born into slavery. Some, of course, were captured. Some were bought. Uh, but this was how most slaves were acquired. The family life of a slave is one of the most critical factors at work in the book of Philemon, but we know almost nothing about it, so we have to guess 
on the basis of generalities and conclusions. But family life for a slave was totally dependent upon the character of a master. A good master tended to be a little bit nicer to slaves. And rascally, I'm using the word from 1 Peter, rascally masters tended to be mean to their slaves. So we don't know from generalities that much about Philemon and how he treated Onesimus and whether Philemon, prior to his Christian days, was kind to Onesimus or not. Male slaves, very importantly, and I think this is critical in this letter, remained boys into their non-existent manhood. Because if they became male, man, a man in Roman law, in uh, Greek law, they could inherit, they could marry, they could have children of their own. So they remained as boys in Roman law. This is why to this day, because of the influence of Aristotle in New World slavery, African American males do not want to be called boy because it evokes slavery to them when they no longer had manhood status. The, the words that Paul uses for Onesimus in this letter then become highly significant for how he chooses to describe this man Onesimus in front of his slave owner Philemon. Slaves were not only traded in the ancient world, leaving them with an instable existence, precarious, even though if you had a good slave owner, you might have thought it was more stable. They were commonly physically abused, and there's all kinds of records of this, of, of scars and everything else on their bodies. They were often sexual servants to uh, typical Roman males. Sometimes uh, they were sexual servants to their female masters, but not as often. If this is the case with male slaves, how much more so would it have been with female slaves in those typical households? Well, Onesimus is from Colossae, which is a green hill today. Uh, but my prayer is that the, the uh, Turkish government will release some money so that the people assigned to the archaeological dig of Colossae will soon be released and we can find what was there. Um, we can hope that there'll be something important. For right now, it's a Cub fan's hope that there will be a millennial realization of the Colossae archaeology. We don't know for sure, but I think it is probably the case that Onesimus ran away. There's a little bit of a dispute here and it's kind of a fun dispute, uh, and this is what makes scholars scholars, is that they can disagree with one another, not come to any kind of consensus, and move on. <laughs> Be fully convinced in their own mind that they've resolved it. And that is whether he was a fugitivus, a fugitive who was running away from Philemon, or whether he was an arrow, and that is someone seeking advocacy with his owner, and therefore his intent, according to later Roman law, was not actually to run away, but to find an advocate and to return to the household under a more legal and just situation. This is why Paul probably 
is saying that owners have to treat their, uh, their slaves with dikaios, justice, and a very interesting word, isotes, uh, and fairly is a little soft of a translation for a word that could very well mean equity and equality. But he runs away, I think, uh, probably because he experienced injustice in the household at some level, and he wanted to find some kind of escape. It was a, an act of desperation to run away. And Paul uh, somehow comes into contact with this man. Paul will explain it in quasi-Calvinistic cal categories because we know that he was an Arminian. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> but he sends him back, and this is one of the most potent uh, dimensions of this letter. He sends this man, Onesimus, back to Philemon uh, because Onesimus' future is entirely in the power of Philemon's decision. And Paul constructs this letter, which I think is an, an actually an amazing letter, to persuade Philemon of a certain kind of behavior, and the behavior um, is something Paul wants him to do, and that is well, something we'll look at tomorrow to see what he wanted. So to me, this is the story of Onesimus, and this is the challenge. You know, how do you solve, I'm, I'm using a pun here because I'm near Ben, and that is, how do you solve a problem like Onesimus? Now, if you don't know the evocation of Julie Andrews and that famous movie, then I just feel sorry for your lack of education. <laughs> but the more potent issue is how can Paul work toward reconciliation? And that's what this letter is about, is Paul trying to effect reconciliation between Philemon, Onesimus, and Paul becomes his advocate, and the advocate for reconciliation, an advocate for justice. And I'd like to look at some of the things that Paul does with Onesimus in this letter uh, as, a, as a way of setting up and I think that this is rhetorical persuasion. And you can look at this letter as manipulation, if you're a skeptic. Or if you agree with Paul's theology, you think this is the way to persuade people to do what's right. I'm with Paul. And I'm disappointed when I think people distrust Paul so much that they think that this is manipulative. Progressives are the ones who find it manipulative. And Paul's probably advocating things that progressives like. It's the irony of the Bible, I guess, in the hands of a progressive. I, I, I didn't intend to make too many political comments, but that's probably all you need to hear. I've been exposed. So Paul, in essence, uh, makes a presentation of Onesimus to Philemon in this congregation. And I'll say a little bit about this more tomorrow, but I do not believe that Paul expected typical Sunday morning Bible readers to present this letter in the congregation. What I mean is, I don't think, I've been in churches where people read the Bible, and I wonder if they had read the Bible for the reading prior to that service. And they stumble through weird names, especially those Old Testament names, 
and there's absolutely no rhetorical impact from Scripture. I was in Northern Ireland, and we wandered into a, we were in, I guess it was in Ireland, the Republic, and we wandered into a Catholic church and um, because they were having a service, and it was the worst performance I'd ever heard in my life of reading Scripture because the priest, I'm sure, was trying to get through Scripture as quickly as possible so he could get on to the hot stuff called Eucharist. Uh, but that hot stuff doesn't get hot without the Scripture giving it the power. So uh, I believe that Paul uh, trained someone, taught someone, coached and mentored someone how to read this letter in Philemon's presence. And I think it's very likely that his name was Tychicus. We don't know that for sure, but I do. <laughs> and I know it's because it's in my commentary on Colossians, and that's why I know it's true. But we don't know. I, w I like the idea that maybe Onesimus read it, but that really creates some too much tension for me, but it would have been fun. Um, so when this letter was read, in a sense, Onesimus is being presented to Philemon. And it's very interesting how Paul presents Onesimus publicly to this slave owner because he's now being re-entered into this community and this household. And in so doing, he's creating an opportunity for, for reconciliation. Paul begins, and I, I'm not going to read the whole letter today. We'll look at that tomorrow. But in verse 10, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Now, if you're an NIV reader and you know Greek, you think that's probably huios, but it's not. It's technon, and this is a word that Paul uses for his dear friend and dear son, Timothy. So this isn't simply the word son, it's a dear family, it's a child of his, but he's not calling him a pice. He's not calling him boy. This is, according to slave his, uh, scholars today, and I checked with a couple of them, this is not on the register of words used for slaves in the Roman and Greek worlds. This is a word used for family members. So Paul says that he has been led to Christ. So Onesimus has now become a Christian. As a Christian, Paul looked at this man in completely different categories. One of the things I like about the Apostle Paul is absolutely unafraid to tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need evangelists in the church. We have an increasing number of young evangelical Christians who want to change the world and make a difference. And so they're committed to social justice, which is wonderful. Except the church is a body of believers, and people only become believers when we share the gospel with them. And we need evangelists. We need seminary students whose mission in life is to lead other people to Christ and to bring people to the gospel so they can hear the gospel. I taught for 17 years at an undergraduate institution that was quasi-Christian because we, no one was required to be, it's not like Asbury, you know, where everybody's a Christian. We had lots of pagans around our school 
because no one was required to be a Christian. And at Tuesday and Thursday morning it's at 8 o'clock, I taught uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And every year between 10 and 20 of my students gave their life to Christ. And I didn't really preach the gospel to them the way you might expect. I just told them about Jesus and they said, I want to be involved. And I found that our greatest asset in Christianity is Jesus. You might, you might, not, you might not notice this. Sometimes you think it's our theology Justification, sanctification, I'm amongst Wesleyans, i got to keep these things really close. <laughs> and sometimes you think it's our charismatic gifts or our brilliance. Some people really are brilliant, and it's impressive. And some people think it's musicians that make a church. But a church is about Jesus, and when Onesimus came into the circle of Paul, he was going to get nabbed with Jesus. And so Paul shared that with him, and he became his son. And we need to be people who are vigilant about evangelism and telling people about Jesus. Pastors who are afraid to share the gospel aren't pastors. I don't know what they are. But at the formation of our task in ministry and in churches, is telling other people about Jesus. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard today. It's got to be the hardest it's ever been in the world, other than the first century, when you're in prison under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And Paul said, I'll preach the gospel. And I got the scars to prove it. And he wasn't one bit afraid of leading Onesimus to Christ, because he knew that the future of reconciliation in the household with Philemon was dependent upon him becoming a sibling. And he learned his story. I like this in verse 11. Formally, and I don't know where he learned this. He's got two primary sources probably. Well, maybe Tychicus, Epaphras, and Onesimus himself. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Somehow Paul knows that Onesimus and I doubt that he's just playing on words here. This is a little too much words just to be playing. He learned probably from Onesimus that Onesimus was not a very good slave. And maybe this is why he ran away. He just got tired of doing things that he was supposed to do. And maybe he learned he was useless from Epaphras, who seems to be Paul's special conduit to the church at Colossae since he founded that church and may very well have led Philemon to Christ. But all we know is that he knew his story, and knowing people's stories is very important. We had a, a graduate assistant teaching college students uh, at, at North Park one time, and a student came into me, this graduate assistant came into me and said, I got a student in the front row who hates me. I said, this is really hard. I said, uh, how do you know he hates you? He said, well, he, he won't take notes and he won't acknowledge what I'm doing. And I said, uh, what's his name? He said, I have no idea. I said, well, let's start right there. Let's learn his name. And I said, here's my suggestion to you. I said, next time he comes to class, you stand at the doorway 
And when he comes to the door, you greet him by name, and you ask him one question about his life, what he's majoring or something. And I said, every day you do this for a while, I said, I, I think it'll be a pretty good experiment for you. So I saw him three weeks later, and I said, how's it going with that student? He said, what student? I said, the student who doesn't like you. He said, oh, he says, we've become friends. He says, we have coffee together every day. I said, what started it? And he said, I learned his name. Isn't this the case? You know, people, people whose names are acknowledged because you learn their story becomes fundamental to all pastoral tasks. And I like that Paul knows uh, Onesimus' story. He wasn't just a number who could be added to the attendance of recent converts. He was a story who needed to be incorporated into the community at Colossae. And Paul tells us in verse 12 that he loved him. He said, I am sending, and he uses this, he interrupts his point, who is my very heart. And here Paul's expressing his deepest feelings for this man, that he loves this man deeply. And so he's encouraging Philemon to welcome him in. Verse 13 has a little bit of an interesting expression. I would have liked to keep him with me. Now, maybe he was restrained by Roman law, which was it was illegal to harbor runaway slaves. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that he could take your place. This assumes something that Philemon's been doing on behalf of Paul in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. I think Paul turned many of his converts into immediate agents of the gospel, like Epaphras. Um, and maybe this is what's happening with Onesimus. He has become so powerful in his connection with Paul that Paul needs him in the ministry of the gospel. Whatever Onesimus could provide, Paul's uh, petitioning, perhaps, in this letter for Philemon to turn him back over to him so that he can further the gospel work where Paul is. So Paul has, uh, has helped him learn the gospel. He's helped him learn gospel ministry in mentoring and discipling him. And now Onesimus is contributing to gospel work wherever Paul is, which I think he's in Ephesus, but Ben thinks he's in Rome, so he's probably in Rome. <laughs> is, that right? is that right? All right until he reads my commentary on Colossians. <laughs> then he will revise his. Paul now makes what I said is this quasi-Calvinistic comment about Onesimus. I love this statement because it reveals the humility of the Apostle Paul, Arminian humility, about understanding the plan of God in the world. He says in verse 15, Taka! Perhaps, not knowing for certain, and rhetorically a potent statement because it forces Philemon now to rethink. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while, interesting expression, was that you might have him back forever. Surely, the Apostle Paul is saying that God's providence worked through this strange social act by Onesimus of running away and brought him into my presence 
and I led him to Christ, and now he's coming back to you as a brother. So this, I think, is Paul's theological explanation. It's not absolutely certain. There's a certain subjectivity about it all in perception, perhaps the reason this was. Paul thoroughly believes this, but he wants to put it in Philemon's lap to consider that God was actually at work in this act of bringing him back to you forever. And surely that remains the fact that he's now become a Christian and he will be forever with him in the kingdom of God. But the most dramatic moment in the letter occurs in verse 16 when Paul says, you can have him back. And this is an unbelievable expression because Galatians 3.28 now has legs. No longer. Look at that word, uketi, in the Greek New Testament. It is a glorious expression when you start studying what follows the uketis in the New Testament. No longer as a slave. Better than a slave. There's lots of things better than a slave. They're at the bottom of the barrel. As a dear brother. So now his whole status has changed. And now Paul has kicked open the door. He shoves Onesimus through the door. And he said, he's a brother. Now let's figure out what to do. And so Philemon is put in the box, in the dock, and he's going to have to decide. And tomorrow we will look at what Philemon did with this story. But Paul has now presented a runaway slave, and he's actually working out his theology in living reality. You know, a lot of times people think theology is something we live in the head. But the reason we defend orthodoxy is because it really matters in life. Trinitarian theology is not something that ordinary people ought to be tinkering with. And even people who are not ordinary ought not to be tinkering with it, some of whom teach at other seminaries. But we ought to realize that orthodoxy matters because of its impact in life. It's not simply airheaded theology. So Paul believes in oneness in Christ between slaves and free, and now he gets to try to work this out. Well, it was 6.15 by the time I got over reading this story on the Internet that was crucifying me in public. And I made a plot. And I plotted grace because I didn't think the guy had any. And I thought, when he writes his next book, I'm going to review it on my blog. And I'm going to review it, if I can, positively. And then I'm going to see how he responds. So he wrote a book. You know, that's what we do. We write books. And I read this book, and I really liked it. Talked about canon and stuff like this. And so I, I read it very carefully. I found a couple points where I thought he was just dead wrong, and I reserved them for footnotes, you know. And I, I sent the review to this person before I was going to publish it on my blog. And I said, I'd just like to know if I've represented you fairly and what you think. Now, Ben often does this with me when he reviews stuff of mine. 
I think it's kind and gracious to do this with authors because we don't like to wake up at six o'clock and have someone misrepresenting our books. That's what we do, you know. So I sent him this review and it was very affirming. And at the bottom, uh, I said, and I'm not gonna say this on the blog, but I have two disagreements that I think could make the book better. And he wrote me back and the first words he said to me was, you're nicer to me than I have been to you. And he said, your suggestion is actually devastating to my book because you've proven something very important to the book wrong. And I think you're very kind in not talking about it in public. We have become friends. We communicate most of the time every day. And he knows I'm here and he's praying for me here. I've never met him in person. But for five years, we have carried on personal correspondence about our families, our lives, our ministries. Because you know something? Reconciliation is the best thing about the gospel. And it's the hardest thing about the gospel. Because he could have been really nasty because I was reviewing. But grace worked in his life and it worked in my life. And we've become friends solely because of Christianity, because of Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life. The Lord be with you.